Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We have this message, and then next week, as was mentioned, we have uh, the Lord's Supper, and then the following week we will be finishing uh, the book of Acts. If you remember, uh, as Mark mentioned earlier, the Paul was on his way to Rome for his trial, and there was a shipwreck uh, in God's providence. And we read this. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain, was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man was a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us uh, hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. When we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you remind us that what we have just read is an account. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's not legend. This is what took place. Recorded by eyewitnesses. And Lord, you saw fit to preserve it to this day so that, so that we could read it and because there's something in there for us Will you teach us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
there are in our day uh, a number of people that are just looking for ease. I couldn't resist as I uh, read this. Uh, what, what is in this article were response cards, comment cards, given to staff members at the Bridger Wilderness Area uh, a few years ago. So people were in this wilderness area, and then they, uh, you know, you have opportunity for comment, and this was uh, a number of the comments. Trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. Trails need to be reconstructed. Uh, please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Uh, please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Uh, please pave the trails so they can be snow plowed during the winter. Uh, chair lifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. Uh, the coyotes made too much noise last night. <laughs> Kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please call. <laughs> they left their phone number. Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. Uh, a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. And uh, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. Too many rocks in the mountains, okay. Now, I'm not accusing any of you of uh, just craving a life of ease. Uh, I doubt that that is the case, though all of us would like things to be a little bit smoother, a few less rocks, maybe a few less uphills. But here's what I do know, because of we are a, a, a normal congregation, we are made up of people, all kinds of people, at all stages of life. That there are some of you here, not saying I want a life of ease, but I would just be happy if I had just the, the normal amount of suffering instead of what I'm going through right now. And if you aren't in a period of suffering, you can be thankful but know that at some point, there will be that time. And so the, the question is, from, from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, what does the Bible tell us about those times? Now, in this passage, we see what I would call some typical views of trouble and suffering uh, look at verse 3. It says, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat, fastened onto his hand. I don't know about you, that gives me the creeps, just, just reading that. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, 
No doubt this man's a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. Now, the first thing we see there is a a very typical response to when something bad happens, and that is, uh, they said, look, he must have been a murderer. In other words, here's the point. He must have done something wrong. Look at that. There's a snake hanging off of his hand. It must have been something bad. He must be a murderer. And too often, whether we say it or not, that tends to be what we think when either we're going through suffering or when someone we love is going through suffering or we know of somebody going through that. It usually doesn't come out, well, that person must be a murderer, uh, but instead it's more often something like, what did I do to deserve this? Or, that's a good person. Why are they going through that? They never did anything against anyone else. So the implication is that when something bad happens, there's always a direct correlation. And usually the implication beyond that, as often as not, when it's what I do to deserve this is, that's not fair. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Now, that's not a good assumption. There are times, we'll see in a few minutes, there are times where there's a direct correlation, but that should not be the the first and foremost assumption when we see something uh, difficult that someone is, is going through. There's another initial response that is sometimes seen in in our world. Look, look, it's in the, the same verses that I read to you when it says, uh, no doubt this man was a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What they've done is they have made God into an impersonal God. Justice. They didn't say God is not allowing him to live, but instead, uh, in, instead of talking about the, the whole of God and who he is, that yes, he's, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's good, and all, all of uh, his attributes, there's been one attribute chosen, justice. And they personified it as if justice is a thing. And so they have boiled God down into one impersonal, in this case, attribute. How do we hear that? Well, sometimes the impersonal thing is the force. Now that's, you know, mythical one there. But sometimes people talk about the higher power, Mother Nature really got her revenge, something like that. Or someone thanks their lucky stars. Or let me really um, tell you one that 
will probably hit home with some of us here in this room. Thank goodness. What is goodness? We don't personify goodness. That's just one attribute of God when we should be saying, thank God this happened. Sometimes we say without even thinking, thank goodness, as if goodness was a thing. And then there's a a third thing we see here immediately, verse 6. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time, saw no misfortune uh, came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So do you see the big swing here? The swing from saying, you know, he's, he's done something awful to deserve this to, well, he... He's, he's getting away with it and nothing seems to hurt him. He must be a God. Which shows how far some will go not to acknowledge the true and living God. And that's what we see here with them. They would rather presume that this one that's walking among them was a God rather than to acknowledge that there is a God in control of what's going on here. Now, those are some responses we see here immediately. And what we're going to do is kind of back away from this and and look at the the bigger picture just to see, well, you know, if, if those aren't accurate, if that's not really the way we ought to look at suffering, then What does the Bible tell us? James Boyce uh, gives, I think, five excellent categories about suffering. He he uses these, and it's five C's, which is funny to me because I was making fun of preachers that use alliteration last week. But uh, he talks about common suffering, corrective suffering, constructive suffering, Christ-glorifying suffering, and cosmic suffering. And what I'd like to do, I want to I take these categories but expand them, and, and I'm, I'm renaming them using uh, words that, that make sense to me and fit with our account here. So uh, let's take a look at what the Bible tells us. And, uh, you know, by the way, to answer that would be a whole series. It's not one sermon. But what we do here at St. Andrews is as we come to things in the Scripture, that's when we deal with them. So there are plenty of places and plenty of times that we have and will deal with suffering. But I would like to look at these five categories very uh, quickly. The first one uh, I'd like to call snake's bite suffering. Okay, snake's bite, not snake bite, but snake's bite suffering. Over in Job chapter 5, it says this, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, here's the point. There is a, a natural order of things that God, who is the creator, 
put together. We live under that natural order, but at the same time, we live in a fallen world. So, uh, you know, there are, are things that, uh, uh, you know, in the garden before sin, the natural order was there. But then sin came into the world and it interrupted not only the relationship between God and man, but the, the natural order of things. So whereas at one point, the snakes and the serpents were all getting along with one another and with man, after the fall, snakes bite. That's what they do. So here, here's the point in, in this, that there are just some things that go on in this world that the bottom line of the why is going to have to be, you know, we, we really don't know, but we do live in a fallen world. And so in this world, as long as we're in this world, before that new world that we sang about when Christ comes again, before that, we are in this period where there are going to be these difficulties and there are going, there's going to be disease and there's going to be sickness and there's going to be uh, cancer and there's going to be uh, car wrecks and there's going to be shootings and all of those kinds of things and then there will be death and there'll be loss. And that's the order of things. But within that, under this category, under the snake's bite category, we also need to understand, you know what? Snakes bite Christians and snakes bite non-Christians. You know, you, you pick up some sticks and you, you put it into something hot and the snake comes out. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, they might latch on to you, okay? And... So it's not about whether you're a believer or, you know, snakes bite nice people and snakes bite mean people. But snakes bite. So that's one category of suffering where we just recognize there is a natural order of things. And, and, and so when we find ourselves asking that question, well, why do I have this disease at least one part of the answer is because we live in a fallen world and in this world there is disease. But the hope for the believer is this. It won't always be that way. It wasn't that way before and it won't be that way in the future. Second kind of suffering, consequential Suffering. Verse 17 of uh, Psalm 107. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. You catch that last part? Because of their iniquities, because of their sin, they suffered 
affliction. So that's acknowledging that that sometimes suffering is related directly to our actions. We shouldn't jump to that presumption every time, but sometimes that's the case. Was God in control when Paul's uh, shipwrecked? Yeah, of course he was in control when the shipwrecked. But why'd the shipwreck? Well, there, there were consequences of, uh, of uh, the, the sailors taking a chance when they shouldn't have taken a chance, and they sailed out into a storm, and ships wreck. But it was a direct consequence of that. Sometimes that is the case. And then there's a third kind of suffering. I'm calling it developmental suffering for our growth. And by the way, there's overlap in all of these. In uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, But we rejoice in our sufferings, which is a, you know, a strange way to start. I'm, I'm starting in the middle of a, a section we rejoice in our sufferings, and, and the, the initial reaction to that is, why would anyone ever rejoice in their sufferings? He says this, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering will often cause growth. But suffering also often puts us in, in touch with God's existence. Um, one, a, a professor from Princeton, James Loder, uh, wrote about how his life was uh, really redirected. His priorities were, were redirected when he had a, uh, a near-death experience. And some of you can attest to that, what it's, you know, how uh, coming to grips with your own mortality can cause you to think about things differently. And then in writing about that, he gives an example. He said, suppose a a man is uh, planning to go to work one day, and he's going to ride the train uh, to work, and he's he's on the platform, and he falls off the platform, and his uh, foot gets lodged uh, in the tracks. And there he is, vulnerable. He knows that unless something happens, he's going to be killed right there. It's the end of his life. And so that man cries out to God, and he says, God, if you'll save me from this, I'll do anything for you. And then some other people on the platform come over, and they, you know, they grab him, they, you know, twist his foot, do whatever's necessary, and they, they pull him out. And he's, he's safe. And he uh, ends up going to the hospital because of the injury on, on his foot. And while he's laying there then in the safety of the hospital, in the safety of a hospital bed, he thinks back to what he said to God. God, if you will save me, I will do anything for you. And he concludes, you know what, the, I, I was under duress at that point. And I don't think that really counts because I got saved anyway from that. 
And Loder, the professor, says this. Is it possible that that man was actually more in touch with God when he was in the tracks than he was in the safety of the hospital bed? And the obvious answer is, yeah, I I think he was. It forced him to realize his own vulnerability, his own inability to save himself, to cry out to one bigger than him who is God (coughs) and to make a promise to him. And then once that danger had passed, he, he didn't need to think about God any longer. Sometimes that's what suffering does for us. When you're in the middle of that and you realize your own inability, your own limitations, it causes you to be more in touch with who you are and who God is. Here's a fourth biblical principle. And uh, this I'd call showing the glory of Christ, suffering. In John chapter 9, uh, if you remember, that was the man that was uh, uh, born blind. And it says this, verse 2, His disciples <coughs> asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, there it is again. He must have done something wrong. He's there, he's blind, he's been blind all his life. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, now here's the, the point of what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying that man didn't sin, nor did his parents, but he was saying he's not blind because of his sin or because of his parents, but that the works of God which he was about to display, could be shown. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he's given a personal testimony. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. One of our pastors, uh, Steve Brown, says, every time a non-believer suffers, a believer suffers in the same way to show the world the difference. I don't think he can prove that. But there is truth in that. I've seen it both ways. I've seen an unbeliever face cancer and death and their own mortality, and I've seen believers. And I'm not saying no believers struggle with that. Of course they do. But there is no comparison between the two. I couldn't help but think as we, this this morning we sang it as well, of... uh, a couple that I have mentioned to you before, uh, the Wheelers, 
She was our children's director in my previous church, and on Christmas Day one year, they were in a bad car wreck coming to church, and she's been a, a quadriplegic ever since then. She's spoken to our ladies here before. She couldn't even breathe on her own. I would meet with uh, Doug. I'd call him during the week, and especially in the, the early months, and I'd meet with him every single week. And I remember more than once saying, Doug, how are you doing? It's such a dumb question to ask, but how do you start your conversation? Doug, how are you doing? And he would often say something like this. My life has fallen apart, but it is well with my soul. I, I don't know that I had ever seen a better application of that. He and his wife were suffering and still are in every way. Awful things. But they would both testify. It is well with my soul. You know what their favorite hymn is? Whate'er my God ordains is right. <laughs> you see, that's, that's what this is. Showing the glory of Christ. Suffering. And then there's a, a fifth kind. The, I, I'm calling it, we just don't know. Suffering. Okay? Uh, and I just put down the book of Job. Just read the book of Job. And we just don't know. Except we do get a little glimpse there at the beginning, don't we? We get a glimpse that there is an all-powerful God who loves Job. And that there is Satan. And that there is communication between them. And that Satan can't have his way unrestrained, but sometimes God, for his own glory, will give him a little bit of rope. He can never go beyond. So, what's the answer to your suffering? Why you're going through this? We seldom know the reason for suffering we encounter. I've given you some reasons, but we seldom know the exact reason for the suffering we encounter. And so what I've told you today is not so you can figure out why you're suffering, because it's probably not one of these reasons or all five of them. It's probably millions of reasons that the God who loves us more than we can love ourselves is permitting to take place for His glory and for our good, even when we can't possibly tell how it could bring Him glory or be good for us. This week we've probably all seen the grief and the outrage of the father of the young man who went on the killing spree and then took his own life. 
and he said, he said some drastic things, but who could blame him? I mean, we saw that. And then, then this morning, we hear about a, a fellow pastor whose son's graduating from high school. And he takes somebody home and, and somebody just drives by, a drive-by shooting and takes his life. How can that kind of thing go on in this world? And those caused me to think of a, a news conference that was after a, a, a tragedy. It was over in England where uh, 96 soccer fans, football over there fans, were crushed to death uh, when a, a stadium collapsed and a, a number of people were injured. And afterwards, the surgeon came out from the hospital where most of them were, and he began to read the names of those who had been killed and expressed his sympathy, he said it this way. He believed that God understood the parents' grief and was with them in their time of need, to which one of the fathers bitterly responded, what does God know about losing a son? And the answer is, he knows everything about losing a son. You see, that's, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, from every other philosophy. This is what sets it apart. The God himself who didn't have to chose to walk among us. The Father sends his Son knowing that he will die from unjust acts of sinful people. And yet that same God says, I love you more than you can know. And he proved it in the suffering of his own son who walked among us. That's the God that we worship. He gets it. There is purpose for it. And it's for our good. Let's bow together. None of us, Lord, not one of us in this room wants to suffer. But you were always honest with us. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take courage because I've overcome the world. And so, Lord, will you, will you be our comfort? Will you be our high tower, our protector? Will you show your goodness even in the midst of our suffering? We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.